The person who kills is the person who has no discipline, no restraint, and who has purchased his power in the form of a Saturday night special. And that is the kind of power that science fosters and permits. And that is why you think that to build a place like this is simple. Ian Malcolm, the book, Jurassic Park. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's Let's get get lit. listening to Let Society, a podcast about books and drama. So Kari, how was your week? It was great. I want to give a shout out to Nerdette on WBEZ. Uh, Nerdette is a podcast hosted by Greta and they were kind enough to invite us on. We had a great time discussing crying in H Mart. So please go over there and listen to Nerdette. Again, that's Nerdette, N-E-R-D-E-T-T-E. And we'll even have that show on our feed within a week or two. Um, but yeah, yeah, go support Greta. It was fun. How well, was your week? Sounds, well, that was the fun part of my week. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. But I would like to just move on and jump right into the uh, theme of the oh, week. Oh, it I'm must excited. be juicy. It must oh. be juicy. I'm right. Oh, it let is. me also remind listeners that this is the first Thursday of the month, which means if you want to see our faces, we're on YouTube. Looking at you. And you can check Sharkeisha's progress or lack thereof. Don't know who Sharkeisha is? You should have started listening to our show weeks ago. All right, go ahead, girl. Don't be (laughs) insane. I'm not even going to engage. She's back there. Ooh, ball headed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I I refuse. You see that pile of sticks behind Alexis, y'all? That's a fiddle leaf fig tree. That I gave her. And look what she done did to it. Go ahead oh, with your I, theme of the week, girl. I made a video about her. It's really sad. <laughs> but really, I might share that. I don't know. Anyway, let's get into it. You know, each week we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we are reading. This week, the theme is The Problem with Zoos. Ooh, okay, we shaking the table. Mm, yeah, just a America's little bit. America's pastime. And then after we talk a little bit about zoos, I want to briefly mention the Jurassic Parkish idea that was on the NPR news website that was shared to me by the husband of Kari. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, let's see what my husband, he always trying to get in on this show vicariously through somebody. Go ahead. (laughs) All right. First up, zoos. Kari, we spoke about this a bit last week. I said I love zoos. You said no, right? Right. All right. Well, how do you um, how do you think zoos got started? Do you know why they got started? I think the wealthy wanted to show off uh, <laughs> <laughs> the property they've collected all over the world with no type of care for the environment, the natural environment of the animals. Um, or that animal's um, ideal quality of life. I think they just, it was all about them. Am I right? I think around the late 1700s, this probably (laughs) happened. I'm going to say you're pretty close, but let me share with you what (laughs) National Geographic says. They say that people... 
have always kept wild animals, but those collections have not always resembled modern zoos. In fact, the first zoos were created as private collections by the wealthy to show off their power. The private collections were called menageries, and they did hire animal handlers to make sure that the animals thrived and reproduced. Mm. Does that sound familiar to you, Kari? Yeah, menageries still exist. Yeah, yeah, I think of um, them. I think of Michael Jackson's Neverland. Mm-hmm. And then Pablo Escobar owned a zoo. Right. And if you remember, Michael Jackson had um, Bubbles, the mm-hmm. chimpanzee that was part of his zoo. <laughs> I do. <laughs> do you know where the first modern zoo was opened? You know, probably somewhere European, <laughs> you know, known for eccentric C. If that's a word, I'm saying it wrong. I'm going to say Paris. The first, you're right. You're so sorry. Girl, reading. <laughs> the first modern zoo opened in Paris in 1793. Mm-hmm. It's still popular and a busy spot it in still Paris exists. today. Mm-hmm. Yes. What about the first zoo in the United States? San Diego. No. While San Diego, I believe, is the largest zoo in the United States, it was not the first. The first zoo in the United States was in Philadelphia, and it opened in 1874. Wow. And its focus is rare breeding and endangered animals. Today's zoos are meant to educate and entertain Mm. the public, and they have a strong emphasis on scientific research and species conservation. There is a trend toward uh, giving animals more space and recreating natural habits. I actually remember a big conversation about that maybe over the past 10 years about um, people's concern about zoos, but I never uh, made that personal, right? I just Mm -hmm. hear it, people talking about it in the streets. Did you know that the zoos are um, usually regulated and inspected by the government? No, I didn't. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So zoos, there are several types of zoos. Um, You got the urban and the suburban zoos. Um, They're concerned about the suburban zoos. They have more space, but the urban zoos, don't necessarily have um, space. So that's a problem people are concerned with. What about There's that a- tiger in the projects? You remember that story? <laughs> I do remember <laughs> okay, that Okay, I'm going to try to remember to put it in the show notes. If y'all don't remember the story about the tiger in the projects, it is a hoot. <laughs> it is. And then there's safari parks and game reserves and petting zoos and conservation parks. You know, they have those game um, game reserves where they allow people to... You can hunt the sh- where you can hunt the animals. But I think they're starting to move away. Not that they don't exist anymore, but they've turned some of them not into um, shooting animals, but shooting pictures. That's what I read. So that's the thing. (laughs) Believe that if you want to. (laughs) Okay. So how do zoos actually help? Okay. It's said that zoos educate the population. They protect endangered animals. They have captive breeding help. Um, They support the economy. They provide jobs and they increase tourism. If you got a really great zoo, there's specialized care for animals. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, there is scientific research. But what's wrong with zoos? Everything. Okay, Kari, what would be one of the first things you would say was wrong with zoos. So when I first moved out of my parents' house on my own, I had a studio apartment and I was thinking about getting a cat. And then I thought, I can't get a cat. I live in a studio. And then my mind 
automatically went, I should stop going to zoos. <laughs> if I won't put a domestic cat in a studio apartment, why am I going somewhere where there's a whole elephant in a cage or a whole ape in a cage or an mm-hmm. animal house? Um, so I would say one of the biggest problems is the um, environment being so against the natural and so contrary to what's naturally appropriate for that animal. It doesn't allow them to migrate. It doesn't allow them to live their life as they naturally would. Yes, that is one of the concerns, the adverse effects of unnatural conditions. They are unable to uh create the exact replicas of the animal's natural environment. For example, orcas in the wild live uh, at least 100 years. Mm. But in captivity, they're only living 30 years. That's a problem. Wow. That's a problem. That should be clue number one. Yeah, that they don't something need to ain't be, right. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be in captivity. This is not an am- this is just not one of those animals that we need to learn about on that level because mm-hmm. you're cutting short their life. That doesn't even make sense, right? Yeah, and we're not in the 1700s, we're not in the 1800s. We have brilliant documentaries now. We have cameras that can go into the den of a wild cat and really show us how it raises its young. We don't need zoos for that to educate Ooh. us on how and you're not you're not recreating anything. If you want to know how that animal lives naturally, you have to go to where they naturally live and document it without disturbing them uh, as much as possible. But zoos don't recreate that. So whatever we're learning about the animal is has to be somewhat tainted or inaccurate. Yeah, I would think just a little bit when yeah. I think of, I was thinking, but. I think aquariums are all right, right? No, but you them- just don't care as much about them animals. <laughs> no, no, no. I love to, I can sit hours and watch like the big aquariums at the aquariums that they have. I love seeing them. But um, when I hear about the orcas, then I think, but what about them? Are, are there's something, their life being cut short in this captive environment as well? Mm-hmm. I do like to see the fishies. Okay. I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, another thing, animal welfare is being overlooked. They mention zoos in areas that are under war zones where the animals are like left behind. So I think this one that they mentioned was in Syria. They just jet, you know, your life yeah, is at do. stake. Yeah. The last thing you worried about is what's going to happen to the animal, right? Mm-hmm. And and a human life is more valuable than an animal life. But that doesn't mean an animal life is not valuable. Right. It doesn't mean that an animal doesn't have rights. And it doesn't mean that you're not responsible for what happens to that animal if you decided to take it within your care. Because that animal didn't give you permission to care for it. So if you're going to take it in, uh, whether it be a menagerie zoo or your house, you have to care for that animal. Yeah. And then through the um, overlooked we're missing the animal cruelty. So mm. you find animals that are emaciated. Oh. They're not be they're malnourished, of course. So this is it's not it's not a good environment for them. And that not only happens in places where you gotta run because of war, but it's happening where they're not being properly cared for in the state. So if they're not being um looked over properly by the governmental agency that's supposed to be watching them yeah that can happen mm-hmm. that can happen yeah that's they can become neglected yes neglected that's the word i was mm-hmm. looking for um breeding programs another thing breeding cro- programs create dependency 
So yeah, because they, they all animals. they do is swipe right, and then when they get in the wild, they they ain't got no game. They don't even know what to say to the lady. <laughs> so when they re- they create, they breed the animals, and then they release them back into the wild, and the animals die quickly because they have they don't have the survival skills needed. To be in that environment. That's what I and just that's said. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. I wanted to say it in the terms that I had read it. Because you was like, it's dating life. But no, they just being eaten by other people because they don't know where to go. There's that. They just being eaten. Messed it's up. not that they can't find a date. It's a problem. It's bigger than a date, okay? Everything yeah. is not about dating. All right. <laughs> Change and animal behavior due to captivity. The adverse effects, the elephants, they're migratory animals and their inability to migrate makes them aggressive. So mm-hmm. they end up, um, I think it's called euthanizing. Is it oh, euthanizing? no. Yeah. They, they, and, mm-hmm. Go ahead. They take the life of the animal through uh, chemicals or even not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes through uh, more violent means. Yeah. Yeah, because they, they blame the animal and they blame the animal because they, they can't have an aggressive animal in a zoo. Right. That's you know, they're good. guessing, oh, you're not able to migrate. That's why you're angry. No, maybe I'm angry because you took me away from my family. <laughs> maybe I'm angry because I had things to do tomorrow and now I'll never be able to do them ever. <laughs> maybe I'm angry because you kidnapped me. I'm a whole animal. So... Um, Hmm. But you know, a lot of the animals now I think are bored in zoos. They're bored? Yeah, they bored. 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 I know what you said. I was trying to clean it up. And if you would take an animal away from its environment and put it in the cage, you just one step closer to taking me and out of my environment and putting me in a cage. Oh, sound like history. (laughs) That do sound like something that has Mm -hmm. happened. It's on record. Yeah. Okay, and then um, overpopulation. Who's the most popular animal in the, the zoo? The babies. The babies. They're the biggest attraction. They're that's the money maker. If you got zoos that um that you pay to get into, don't I want to see them old old adult <laughs> animals? <laughs> we want the young spring chickens we and do. not chickens. We want pandas. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so they continuously breed the animals to have newborns. There you go, overpopulation. And then what? You know what happens next with overpopulation. Mm-hmm. And then you have animal rights. Are animals property? Well, we have to consider whether we have duties to animals and then give them their due respect. Do we have duties to animals? Do we have any responsibility to the animal world, in your opinion? I'm going to say, yeah, we do have a responsibility to the animal world. We of work. course we do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree we with do. you. They contribute to the overall ecology of, of We would not exist without animal life. We, Yeah. yeah. I mean. And you can yes. leave people alone. <laughs> Just like you can leave people alone. You can leave animals alone. Leave them where they at. <laughs> you yep. don't have to own them. They can exist <laughs> without you. You don't have to. Yeah. That's the thing. Well, look, that's that on animals. So I have to ask you, with all of that information you've researched, thank you for that. How do you feel about zoos? Okay. So I love zoos. I mean, I just remember that as one of the 
trips my mom used to take us on, like regularly when we were children. That was like our fun. Okay. It was it was uh five of us at the time. So we were all got on a bus and went to the zoo. It was the best thing ever. So I've very fond memories of the zoo. Yeah. So well I so this opened my eyes in a different way. Um being having to look at zoos as a, a bad thing. Because I never looked at it as a bad thing before. It was like, um, yeah, but zoos are my memory. They're my good time. So I love mm-hmm. zoos. I like seeing the animals. But looking at it this way, I'm like, yeah, but there's a animal, a lion, let's say a lion, whose wildlife in the wild is not a stone concrete, right? That's not right. it. And that's what you see when you go in there. They're, they're on stone, right? Where normally their life is... Their green grass greenery all around, <laughs> unless they're um, space and opportunity. Yeah, unless they're um, you know hunting something down and by the water, <laughs> it's greenery. It's greenery yeah. all around, and you can't. You're not recreating that, Mm-mm. and so I think that's not fair. And then I think about the 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 gorillas, the apes. They're they're not in their natural habitat either. So None I think of the about animals those are things. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that makes me um, look at it a little differently. But I would like to go um, to the zoo again. So um, when I go, I can experience it differently and and I can kind of apply what I've learned. So you want to see how you feel. Yeah. Like maybe this will be the last time you go to the zoo. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking about. But I'd like to go. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of great memories tied to zoos, especially for children. But there is a cost for those experiences. And that cost is like blood and bone. And how okay are we with that? Just because it's animal blood and bone. Yeah, that's that's the reality of it. And on the that's flip the side of that, when you go to the zoo, I'll go with you because I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> I don't initiate zoo visits. But if someone wants to go, uh, I don't really have the best time there. It does bother me. But oh, I like okay. to sip, uh, bring in like some spiked cocoa. That's like my favorite thing, especially with in the winter. We have a a free zoo here in Chicago, Lincoln Park Zoo. Um, And yeah, walking in there with my um, contraband and sipping and walking. That's fun. But there's animal. Go ahead. Yeah, that's just what I do. You see, I've mentioned it a few times. That's what I do. I love everything about the zoo except the animals. (laughs) Get them out of there. That's not Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just walking around is like going to the park. Is that so, your way of bucking the system by bringing in your contraband? It's a free zoo, so no. Um, but you know how we go to amusement parks and you hold everybody purses. That's how I'm going to be when y'all when we go to the zoo. Y'all go look at the animals. Go ahead, baby. I'm just going to be here sipping my cocoa. <laughs> I'll hold but your purses. There are other zoos. Are you saying you only go to the free ones? Yeah, I can see paying for a zoo. <laughs> Got it. Got it. I yeah. Hear you. Oh, no. Nah. I can't support the system okay. as a black woman in America. Anyway, Ooh, so, many ties. so many <laughs> ties. Mm, that and is. if you don't get the connection right to us, <sighs> we'll explain mm. it. Especially okay. Alexis. <laughs> because that's I mean, I hit differently. So it I hit different. see that differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, so, the tiger looking at you and you looking at it and it's like, and, I, and you like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, so sad. Okay. That's not thing. All right. Mm-hmm. We're going to move on because I really, really want to talk about 
the NPR headline. Oh, tell Scientists me. Scientists say they could bring back the woolly mammoth. <laughs> That's a headline, y'all. Okay. NPR. Yeah. Now, who's trying to do this? I y'all want to know? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Somebody from Harvard. <laughs> no offense to Harvard. It's just, it screams privileged and entitled. They went to an Ivy League. They Ivy League adjacent. <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. Right. You're not wrong. I Harvard... University genetics professor mm-hmm. George Church, who is known for his pioneering work in genome sequencing and gene splicing, was given a large amount of money to move forward, along with a company called Colossal. You know how much money he was given? $15 million. What okay. could that do in the Chicago public school system? What's his last name? Uh, George Church and the company is the called audacity. Colossal. And so Colossal, <laughs> their goal is to pursue conservation and preservation of endangered species. They like to identify new species that can be given to uh, a new set of tools from their extinct relatives. Okay, so now that's the who. But how they going to do it? Mm. I'm going to tell you. They will use a gene editing tool known as CRISPR-Cas9. They're going to splice bits of DNA recovered from frozen mammoth specimens into what um, into the Asian elephant, which is the closest living relative. Okay? Gene splicing, editing, all of that. Very scientific. I don't understand. But watch Jurassic Park. It's like the same Yeah, thing. I understand it because I read this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, what are they going to create? It's a going mess? to be a mammoth, mammophant, a mammophant, <sighs> an elephant and a woolly mammoth. It's a why? mammophant. Why though? Why? Well, let me just finish with the what. <laughs> this mammophant would look and behave much like the woolly mammoth. Says who? That's what they had said. I don't know because I don't think they ever saw a woolly mammoth before, <laughs> but that's what they said. Yikes. Okay, you want to know why? Here's the answer. Yeah, I do. They hope that the woolly mammoth can help combat climate change. Reverse it, in fact. (laughs) Here's why. Now they blaming the woolly mammoth (laughs) on what we caused with the aerosol cans in the refrigerators. Go ahead. Yeah, so the mammoth once scraped away layers of snow so that cold air could reach the soil and maintain the permafrost, okay? Permafrost... It's permanent frost, which is found below the surface in the richer regions of the earth. Okay, and it's permanent needed to frost. control the climate all the climate regions all over the earth. Right. So when the woolly mammoth became extinct, it meant that the permafrost started to warm, which led to what global warming. Oh yes. wow! So by bringing the woolly mammoth back, maybe even some other animals who left an ecological void when they went extinct, they could reverse the effects of global warming. That is why. And that's mm. that. They got to do something because we ain't going to keep drinking out these paper straws. No, <laughs> those are every, a problem. They are a problem. They, they are a real problem. <laughs> Look, we're good people. We try. It ain't, mm-hmm. you know, it's not feasible. It's not for us. Okay? <laughs> it's, not for That's, us. it's not for us. Now, the metal straws, I like that because they keep the drink cold. Yeah, but I the like paper them. straws, mm, ain't no hope for it. That makes me want to drink. <laughs> now we're blaming global warming on the woolly mammoths. Mm-hmm. Alexa. Yeah, if they hadn't left, we would be fine. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a thing. And when they bring them back, now, mind you, it's going to take a little time. And that little time is about six years. So in about six years, we're going to have a woolly mammoth. Um, I think between there, they're going to make a uterus. Okay. okay. They're going to make a uterus <laughs> so that they could grow the woolly mammoth okay. and the Asian elephant, um, you know, connect, connect it, put them together. <laughs> the ma- and grow the mammoth. The mammoth. The, the mammoth. Right. That's the hope. Right. That's the hope. Six years. We're going to see one. It's a thing. And that is my information to share. My thing of the week. Well, I feel depressed and enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> now, Thank what depresses you? you? Delighted. That's almost like delighted, but not quite. <laughs> not delighted. Delightened. Well, that's it, folks. I, I wanted to share. I was intrigued. So there you have it. Why don't we take a quick break before we jump into our part two? All right, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> and we're back. Kari, are you ready? This is our part two into Jurassic Park that's going to be filled with spoilers. I can't wait to get into it. Are you ready? I am. And I just want to give a shout out to any new listeners we have. Uh, Jurassic Park is a book we broke up into two segments. So if you want a background on Michael Crichton, um, perhaps his motivation for Jurassic Park, please listen to our episode part one of Jurassic Park. Will you also hear how Alexis thinks he's cute? Now, moving on to Jurassic Park, part two. (laughs) by the List Society podcast. I feel like I should turn off the lights. And this is going to be a bit of a discussion. I'm going to rely on you heavily because my notes are only so-so. Now, first of all, you said at the end of last week's episode, I believe, uh, this book isn't so gory. How do you feel now, Alexis? It's not so gory. Oh, because you're dark. Okay, here we go. It's not gory. It's not. Okay. Uh, Content warning. This book gory, (laughs) y'all. Moving on. (laughs) Part one of Jurassic Park Part 2. Okay, we're going to start for real now. Here it goes. Part one, tastes like chicken. So, reminder, we're in Hammond's Park. Everything is going wrong. We don't know where the kids are. We think Malcolm's dead. Spoiler. And we think Grant probably has a concussion. There are going to be a lot of spoilers, also, if you're new to this show. The vet, uh, Harding, uh, yeah, the vet's name is Harding. He, Ellie, and the lawyer, Gennaro, are in a gas-powered car trying to get back to headquarters. Back at headquarters, Arnold is distraught, and that's Samuel L. Jackson's character in the movie. Why is nothing working? And where is Nedry? Uh, That's Newman. So... Where is Nedry? Oh, he's in the jungle. Lost, blind with greed, and trying to find his way wandering outside of the Jeep he's stolen in the rain. Mm. So his plan was to steal these embryos for the competing company. He was going to make him a cool $1.5 million, which I think is very underpriced, but that's the price yes! he agreed on. <laughs> underpriced. Oh my Are you doing goodness. all this for what? 
Ooh. That's barely a house next door to me. <laughs> what did you do? But no, boo boo, what is you doing? He didn't have um, enough greed. He didn't have enough greed. Too much and yet not enough. So uh, <laughs> enough. he says to himself aloud, you've got a problem, Nedry. And almost like a reply, there's an owl sound in the jungle. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it really doesn't sound like an owl. The hooting animal is a dinosaur. So this hooting animal isn't small and cute like in the movie. It's 10 feet tall, yellow, and is covered in black spots. And it can spit up to 50 feet away. Stumbling over tree roots in the darkness, clawing his way past dripping branches, he saw the jeep ahead and the lights shining around the vertical wall of the barrier made him feel better. In a moment, he'd be in the car, and then he'd get the heck out of here. He scrambled around the barrier, and then he froze. The animal was already there. But it wasn't close. The dinosaur stood 40 feet away, at the edge of the illumination from the headlamps. Nedry hadn't taken the tour, so he hadn't seen the different types of dinosaurs, but this one was strange-looking. The 10-foot-tall body was yellow with black spots, and along the head ran a pair of red, D-shaped crests. The dinosaur didn't move, but again gave its soft, hooting cry. Nedry waited to see if it would attack. It didn't. Perhaps the headlights from the jeep frightened it, forcing it to keep its distance like a fire. The dinosaur stared at him and then snapped its neck in a single swift motion. Nedry felt something smack wetly against his chest. He looked down and saw a dripping glob of foam on his rain-soaked shirt. He touched it curiously, not comprehending. It was spit. The dinosaur had spit on him. It was creepy, he thought. He looked back at the dinosaur and saw the head snap again and immediately felt another wet smack against his neck, just above the shirt collar. He wiped it away with his hand. It was disgusting. But the skin of his neck was already starting to tingle and burn, and his hand was tingling too. It was almost like he had been touched with acid. Nedry opened the car door, glancing back at the dinosaur to make sure it wasn't going to attack, and felt a sudden excruciating pain in his eyes, stabbing like spikes into the back of his skull. And he squeezed his eyes shut and gasped with the intensity of it and threw up his hands to cover his eyes and felt the slippery foam trickling down both sides of his nose. Spit. The dinosaur has spit in his eyes. Even as he realized it, the pain overwhelmed him and he dropped to his knees, disoriented, wheezing. He collapsed onto his side, his cheek pressed to the wet ground, his breath coming in thin whistles through the constant, ever-screaming pain that caused flashing spots of light to appear behind his tightly shut eyelids. The earth shook beneath him, and Nedry knew the dinosaur was moving. He could hear its soft, hooting cry, and despite the pain, he forced his eyes open, and still he saw nothing but flashing spots against black. Slowly, the realization came to him. He was blind. 
The hooting was louder as Nedry scrambled to his feet and staggered back against the side panel of the car as a wave of nausea and dizziness swept over him. The dinosaur was close now. He could feel it coming close. He was dimly aware of its snorting breath. But he couldn't see. He couldn't see anything. His terror was extreme. He stretched out his hands, waving them wildly in the air to ward off the attack he knew was coming. And then there was a new, searing pain, like a fiery knife in his belly. And Nedry stumbled, reaching blindly down to touch the ragged edge of his shirt and then a thick, slippery mass that was surprisingly warm. And with horror, he suddenly knew he was holding his own intestines in his hands. The dinosaur had tore him open. His guts had fallen out. Nedry fell to the ground and landed on something scaly and cold. It was the animal's foot. And then there was new pain on both sides of his head. The pain grew worse. And as he was lifted to his feet, he knew the dinosaur had his head in its jaws. And the horror of that realization was followed by a final wish that it would all be ended soon. I must be morbid because I turned off all the lights and listened to that part like 10 times. I said, this is so well written. (laughs) (laughs) You are morbid. You are. Mm -hmm. I just love to be scared. Yeah. And why? I don't understand that. And this is a perfect scary book because I'm not worried about dinosaurs getting me at night. So I can just be scared in the pages and then I just go to sleep and mind my business. It's nice. (laughs) So yuck. Nedry out there jiggling his guts. Point is, you are alive when they start to eat you. (sighs) So back at Hammond's elegant home on the island, Wu and Hammond are sitting down for dinner. Now, you remember in our last episode, uh, Kevin Wu has spent his entire professional career with Hammond, kind of being groomed from him uh, by him right out of grad school. So he owes the man kind of a lot. I don't know if you ever worked with a company that basically raised you. Nope. You feel <laughs> your identity can become entwined with their uh, company culture. And that's kind of where Wu is. He has some... Uh, strong doubts about the island. He thinks some things need to be changed, but there's no one as optimistic as a narcissist. And so Hammond is like, it's fine. It's a zoo. Calm down. So now they're at, while things are going wrong, you know, you would think anyone would see that by this point. No, not, not Hammond. Um, So not the creator of the island, not Hammond. So Wu and Hammond are sitting down for for dinner and Wu doesn't want to be there. He wants to check his data because Professor Grant had mentioned that the animals are breeding and Wu made all the dinosaurs female. So he's like, how is that possible? If that's possible, it calls into question everything about the park. And, you know, that should be alarming to everyone, not just me. But Hammond, on the other hand, is acting weird. Alexis, can you describe Hammond's attitude? He like passed the chicken or or in yeah. fact passed the ice cream because I love ice cream. Don't you love ice cream? Because mm-hmm. ice cream is good. It goes down. Everything is fine. It's a little hiccup there. Yeah, kind of gregarious. Very. Yeah, he's he's almost um, insane with uh, yeah narcissism. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before how Crichton has an issue with women, it seems, and um, black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not 
overtly racist, I'll say. But if there's a black character, it's mentioned as the black man. Uh, this is so dumb. <laughs> I think that says something about the author, uh, perhaps. But I will say in this part of the book, it plays well because Hammond has a cook who is Haitian. Um, and Hammond says when she leaves the room to woo. Now, just a reminder. Also, Hammond's grandchildren are out there. He should be thinking about a lot of stuff. But he says to Wu, Maria is her name and she's Haitian. Her mom's French. Like she's this exotic thing he's collecting. I thought that was actually pretty good. So Yeah, that was interesting how that was um, written. It's like, mm -hmm. that's odd for him to say that. But when you mm -hmm. say that, it brings it together. It's like he collecting Rarities. Exotic lives. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So Hammond is stepping into his role as the villain. He's eating ice cream and monologuing about the advances in technology for the sake of mankind's health. That's all stupid. <laughs> it's futile. He says, I would never help mankind. <laughs> this man said he would never help mankind. Never. When you spend millions and billions of dollars on a medicine, you can't then charge thousands of dollars. The insurance company isn't going to pay that. The public's going to revolt. And then the government's going to get involved until at the end, your product that you've invested your time and money in is almost worthless when it comes to uh, the cost the public is paying. Lisa Hammond's opinion. Whereas when you make entertainment, people pay anything. And the more they pay, the better. Because then it's a status symbol. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I never do anything to help uh, mankind, he says. Entertainment is the only safe stage for technological advancement. That is why, free from government intervention, there's already a Jurassic Park in Europe and a Jurassic Park Japan in the works. 20 billion per year conservatively is expected to be made. That's why there's time for ice cream. He is not kidding. I this mean, is not, not kidding. America, he says. This ain't even Costa Rica. This is my island. Okay. And nothing's going to stop me from opening it up to all the children of the world, or at least the rich children. Yeah. So if I thought back to my um, intro, and I say, um, young and old, rich and poor. He ain't thinking about the poor children. I mean, he kind of is. Maybe there'll be a nice little grant for them to come. A coupon day. <laughs> but this is for the rich kids. But this is, and I can't this wait. is for the rich children. Because mm -hmm. they'll yeah. pay anything. Speaking of children, let's go find his grandparents since he, our grandchildren, since he ain't worried about them. Not a so bit. We, <laughs> not a bit. We find Tim. He's in a tree, still in the car. He exits in spectacular fashion, very similar to the movie. After vomiting repeatedly, um, the car is chasing him down the tree. He he um, his head is hurting. He's suffering from memory issues, but he makes it down. Um, but he is by himself. There is no Professor Grant with him when he finds his sister. Whew, she's alive because remember, she slid out the car when the T-Rex was attacking mm -hmm. them. So we didn't really know where she is. She's alive. She's sitting in a metal pipe. Still as annoying as ever. 
She got her baseball glove on. This is like a Daryl Strawberry special baseball glove given to her by her father. And since her father left the family, she really clings to it and carries it with her everywhere she goes. So she's holding it, rocking back and forth, banging her head on the pipe. She's traumatized. Um, He tries to coax her out of this pipe, but she's shaking her head and she says, there are aminals out there. And that worries him because she hasn't said aminals since she was a young child. She goes, is daddy out there? He says, no. Mommy? He feels weird, like, no. What about Dr. Grant? He's like, oh, man, my sister crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But Dr. Grant was here before, she says, surprisingly. And then she begins to scream, y'all, this little girl going to be the death of me by the end of this book. Dr. Grant! Dr. Grant! Now, there's dinosaurs out there, but she's screaming because she is annoying. Um, So she keeps screaming Dr. Grant's name, which makes Tim uneasy. But sure enough, he hears Grant calling back. Grant's shirt is torn open and his arms look injured. But other than that, he's fine, thankfully. Meanwhile, Ed Regis, the PR rep that is basically me in this story. (laughs) Every time something tragic happened, he like, oh, this is going to make a wonderful cover. He's like, worst uh, animal attack in human history. Um, Also, I'm scared. I'm going to leave the kids and run out of the vehicle. So if you've seen the movie, it's the lawyer who's very cowardly in the book. It's Ed Regis, the PR rep who's been tasked with the with being the babysitter, a job he never asked for. So he's Mm -hmm. like, I hate that I left the kids, but I also never wanted to watch the kids. So um, so he's ashamed and scared beyond belief out of everyone that was involved. He was the only one that has seen a dinosaur attack in person. And he knows the type of terror that inflicts. Um, So he it, it just his mind goes there right away and he's just struck with terror he can't move but he can't believe he left the children he starts wondering trying to uh, find his bear- bearings and then the jungle goes quiet and he freezes pushing his body against a tree so he's he's gotten out of his hiding place he was walking around the jungle went quiet and then he freezes He sees a juvenile T-Rex pass him. He silently watches as the animal goes by before continuing. So the animal passes. He's like, I got to get out of here. He sees the main road. He goes back up into the main road where the cars were. And he's trying to find people, trying to get back to the kids. He heard the kids. They're still alive. He's got to get to them. He's got to make up for the shame of leaving them in that car. And then the attack came from the left. At first, the juvenile T-Rex begins playing with Ed, similar to a cat might play with its prey, pushing it down. Ed gets up and goes, get out of here, you dumb animal. Then the T-Rex, the juvenile T-Rex, jumps on its chest and jumps off. So Ed gets up and he's like, get out of here. He starts waving his hands. He's almost to the jungle. He's almost to freedom. Then the T-Rex knocks him down again. And again, get back, Ed yells, desperately waving his hands. The final time, the T-Rex knocks him on his back. However, it ducks its head down and all Ed can do is scream. No words. Quietly, Grant and the children watch as the juvenile begins to feed. Yum, 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 yum. I'm on the edge of my seat here listening to this story. Like, and then what? That's how I was reading the book. 
Listen, this part was really sad to me because I'm like, oh, no, I'm being eaten. Because I really identified with that character. Reminder, Gennaro, the lawyer, Ellie, the uh, paleobotanist and Harding, the vet are in a gas powered Jeep. I know I said that earlier. I just want to remind you. And they're wandering the island, making their way casually back to the control room, singing songs, 18 bottles of beer in the wall. They don't know what's going <laughs> they on. They okay? no idea what has occurred. Like, oh, no. why is the Jeep still here? Hmm, why they get? <laughs> then they get, oh, an ear. Um, then they get a message on the radio. It's like, everybody, I need the car. <laughs> And they're like, you need the car? What does that mean? Dumb. There's a car in the garage, Arnold. And then they start talking about Arnold. Like, he always worried. 17 bottles of beer. <laughs> <laughs> and then the message comes through again. You idiots, you're not listening. We need the car. And so Harding is like, the car's in the garage. But finally, um, they understand Maldoon needs their car for some reason. And they're like, fine. Because they were following some compies. And the compies um, are scavengers. So they're like, what animal died that these scavengers are trying to eat them? So they're like, oh, a whole bunch of compies are going this way. We're going to go that way and find the animal that died. Good thing they didn't make it. So they they are obedient and they go back to Arnold. By the time they get to the visitor center, Maldoon is running out screaming with his hands over his head. Like, don't even get out the car. Just throw me the keys. Oh, y'all dumb. (laughs) So Maldoon hops in the Jeep with the lawyer. The other two, the vet, Harding and Ellie run inside. Maldoon and Gennaro, the lawyer, make their way to the land cruisers in hopes of picking up the kids and everyone else. But their priority is like the children. We have to rescue the children. Somebody priority is the children. Somebody. Because it ain't their grandpappies. No. He eating ice cream like everything will be fine. So um, they're like, hopefully we find the kids in one piece. No one has reached out to them in an hour using the radios, so they're more than a little concerned. As they're driving along the road, they come across something, and Gennaro spots it first. It's a leg. <clears throat> it's a leg. <laughs> Whose leg the, the is T-Rex it? tore it off of Ed Harris's body. Remember that juvenile T-Rex? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just tore his leg off, didn't even eat it. Yeah, I hate when people waste their food. I was really <laughs> mad at this part. So, um, Gennaro and Maldun, to their credit, wrapped the leg politely in a tarp and put it back in the Jeep. They just didn't feel it was right to leave it there. Right. I guess they're going to have a funeral for the leg. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's very callous of you. I'm getting dark. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a problem. Insert I'll here. address it later after mm-hmm. I read The Lost World. Then they come across a land cruiser that appears to have fallen out of a tree. Inside there's vomit, which is a good thing because something was alive to vomit, um, and a broken LCD watch, a watch a kid would wear. And this is pretty cool. The fact that the face is shattered likely means it was removed after the attack. And that means the kid took it off. He had time to do that, and he walked out of the car after doing so. So Gennaro is like... How you know it mean all that? So Maldun, remember, was like a game hunter or yep, a safari yep. guide um, in Africa. So he's very good at, um, what do you call it? Like tracking? Yeah. And just deciphering clues. Yeah, and um, he does a really, really good job of that. And Gennaro has no clue because he's really 
picking up the pieces. Okay, this means, okay, so in my opinion, at least one adult and one child is still alive. He saw footsteps. He identified the child's footsteps and the adult. So he knew what they were following. And, and that was that gave him hope that they could keep going. And Gennaro was like, what? Huh? All Gennaro can think about right now is how this whole place needs to be burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they both hear wheezing in the distance. And as a reader, you're like, oh, the juvenile T-Rex is back. But no, um, Gennaro does like want to leave right away. He's like, I don't care where that hissing, wheezing coming from. We got to go. And Maldon is like, shut up. Listen more closely. He finds the source of the noise. It's Malcolm. Yay. Malcolm is still alive. He's badly injured, but alive. He uh, put, put a tourniquet on his leg. And so he hasn't bled to death. He had the presence of mind to do that. And so they have to take him back to the lodge now, however, or he will die. So they abandon their search for the others. It looks like they all may have made it anyway, Grant mm-hmm. and the kids. So they're going to leave them be for now and take uh, Malcolm back so that he doesn't die immediately. It's Gennaro's job when they get back to tell Hammond, hey, your grandkid's missing. And Hammond is like, okay, kids go missing every day. They'll be found. (laughs) (laughs) Where are my animals? (laughs) He's the worst. He is really Um, serious too. Yeah, so Hammond is like, they'll turn up. Everything will be fine. It's a zoo. And it's Meanwhile, made for them. He said it's made for it's them. It's made for kids. It's made and for who kids. better to show them Jurassic Park than a dinosaur expert That's talking right. about Grant? Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, Grant and the children are walking cautiously through the T-Rex paddock. Grant is carrying Lex because she's whining about being tired. This whole book, she is so inappropriate. Um, they'll be trying to be quiet and she'll go, I'm hungry. I want ice cream. I'm tired. Carry me. So he's carrying her. And as she sleeps, Grant and Tim share a touching conversation about Tim's parents' divorce. And um, Tim asks, are you marrying Ellie? (laughs) And Grant is like, no, she's marrying a nice guy from Chicago. Um, And he's like, I don't think I'll ever get married. And then Tim's like, me neither. But their conversation is really cute. Mm -hmm. Then they approach the electric fence. Um, Grant wakes Ellie up and he's like, can you climb, Lex? And she hops up and goes, sure can (laughs) I've been asleep for hours yeah I can climb but Timmy can't and Tim goes shut up you so um, to prove her wrong Tim hurries up and over the fence with no type of event Uh, so in the movie there is this like electric current about to flow through the fence that doesn't happen he goes up and over it's hardly mentioned except Lex says you're welcome because he's scared of heights (laughs) he only did it to spite me (laughs) so she turns to Grant and is like you're welcome So they are pressed for time because remember they saw that ship carrying the young juvenile velociraptors. And so they need to contact that ship to tell it to turn around so that those velociraptors don't make it to the mainland and breed and eat everybody. But they're all too tired right now. So they find a bale of hay and go to sleep. They've been through a lot. So I'm going to let it slide. Uh, The emotional (laughs) turmoil, the trauma they've experienced. Fate of the human race, a couple of winks. They decide to get them winks. Part two, the Malcolm effect. So back at control, Wu and Arnold have managed to turn the power on. Yay. (laughs) Immediately, they use the system to find the animals and the people, but they can't find Grant and the kids. They're baffled. That's because Grant and the kids are asleep outside of the map's radius. So it's like a heat and motion lamp that can detect life in the park. 
But if you're outside of that radius, it don't see you. In the lodge, Malcolm is like cracking jokes. He's high on morphine, but not so high that he hasn't noticed his leg fracture is beginning to smell. It's not good. He's like, "Mm, I might die. (laughs) So Jaynato asked Malcolm, do you remember what happened? And Malcolm's like, yeah, because I was attacked by a T-Rex, so I'll never forget it (laughs) for the rest of my life, which ain't long. But yeah, I remember Gennaro. (laughs) Malcolm is like, the T-Rex lifted me with its jaws. And then he um, lifts up his shirt. And there are these like semicircles all around his torso from his neck to the navel. And that's when the T-Rex was like Ah, bit into him and threw him up in the air. Remember, Grant didn't really know what he was seeing. Yeah. That was written in a great way because I thought, oh, good. He's not getting eaten because he'd know if he was getting eaten. But because Grant said he didn't know what he saw, I thought, yeah, Malcolm probably lives. And he did, thankfully. Right. Um, So it pains me to say, Malcolm responds, but I don't feel I honestly had his full attention. (laughs) Which was interesting. Yeah. The T-Rex seemed distracted, which is why he lived. Whatever happens, we cannot have a Malcolm effect. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he, he had my full attention, but yeah. I don't think I don't think I had his. He had something else on his mind. Yeah, my pride was a little hurt, but that's okay. <laughs> so he can still be funny, even mm-hmm. though he's just clinging to life. Yes. And so before he falls asleep, he's like, whatever happens, let's not have a Malcolm effect. This is what Malcolm is saying. And then he goes to sleep. Hammond used the same expression earlier. What does it mean? What is a Malcolm effect? Oh, well, Malcolm goes to sleep. However, in control, Arnold is in a good mood because he feels like the park is back on track. The power is going. Everything is on its way to being back up and running. So he explains the Malcolm effect to Gennaro. It is a ridiculous notion, in his opinion. Essentially, in Malcolm's um, study or opinion of Jurassic Park, the park is unstable. And all unstable systems have a point where unpredictability occurs at an accelerated rate. Like, I should rephrase that. Unpredictable occurrences occur at an accelerated rate. So because you can't control this environment, things are going to go wrong to the point where they start going really wrong really quickly and everything goes wrong. It kind of collapses in on itself and becomes a catastrophe. By this reasoning, Jurassic Park is bound to experience one failure, then another and another until it is swallowed in a catastrophe of its own making. He produced a report with this conclusion before the park was even built and it was promptly dismissed. Was that wise, Gennaro says? Like, shouldn't you have thought about it? In the park, Hammond and Harding are tranquilizing. um, Oh, not Hammond. um, Muldoon. Muldoon. Mm -hmm. And Harding, the vet, are tranquilizing and collecting animals to return to their paddocks. Muldoon is repairing the two sections of damaged fence, but it's getting dark and there's a full-grown T-Rex somewhere out there who still isn't showing up on the map. So Muldoon heads back to the lodge. Hammond is furious because he's scared. Um, And get this, he's scared that the T-Rex may eat his other dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Reminder, his grandkids are still missing. Still missing. But it's it's for the children. So <laughs> the park is for the kids. It's for the children. Um, and Wu Tang. So Maldon <clears throat> says he's not heading back out there to find a T Rex to lure him away and back to his paddock. Have you forgotten who you work for? Hammond says. No, Maldon calmly responds. I haven't. I ordered three large weapons. 
possibly capable of taking down the Tyrannosaur. However, you reduced my order to one and Nedry took that one who knows where because it was in the car that he stole. So we are stuck, unable to bring down the largest predator in the world. And that's because of the man I work for. So no, I haven't forgotten. Boom. In the park, Grant and his kids, they not his kids, but they basically his kids now, mm-hmm. are still trying to get to headquarters, but they still sleep. You know, they desperate to find the velociraptors on the boat, but they still sleep. They, they just, you know, they tired. It, All humanity is dependent on them, but they <laughs> sleep. Uh, but then they wake up gradually, play with some dinosaurs. Remember that part in the movie where the herbivores are stampeding mm-hmm. because they sense a T-Rex is near? That happens. I'm not going to describe it. Watch the movie. It's the exact same thing, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, The T-Rex charges through the herd. And in the book, Grant and the kids hide up in a tree. They're safe. Um, Then they're looking for a faster way to the lodge. Tim suggests they take the boat he saw earlier. That's because kids lie. Because he never saw a boat. But he figures there must be a boat. So he's like, hey, let's take the boat. And Grant's like, great, let's take the boat. Um, Fortunately, Grant does find a raft (laughs) eventually. However, to get to the raft, he must pass a napping T-Rex, which in a comical scene, the T-Rex is like snoring like Homer Simpson with his (laughs) back resting on a tree and his butt on the ground and his legs in front of him. So he's sitting like a person with a fresh kill next to him. Just got the itis. Mm -hmm. Um, So the people, the Grant and the kids, the people finally make it to the raft and onto the water. But then do you remember what happened? Oh, something comes to try to get the T-Rex's food? No, not yet. Not yet? Okay. Um, Lex, the little girl, she coughs. Oh, (laughs) so at the wrong time. At the wrong time. And she kept coughing. Yes. It's like she, she couldn't reminded control me of it. you. Y'all, Alexis will sneeze so loud it will shake the wall. She don't care if you at the opera. She don't care if you at the US Open. She gonna sneeze and it's gonna be loud and it's gonna embarrass you. These things are in- uncontrollable. So that's Lex. Alexis! Oh, this is you! <laughs> <laughs> so, part three. Kids will slow you down. The T-Rex is awakened by Lex's cough. He rises and walks to the water. I'm sorry, says Lex. I didn't know they could swim. Wait, Snakes wait. can't swim. Wait, wait. And she won't stop talking. Just she shut up already. Just don't say I'm sorry. Just shut up. Okay, shut up. In the, t- in the water, the T-Rex looks like the largest alligator in the world. With its alligator-like head and large swishing tail behind him, the only things visible. He launches towards the boat, but misses only because this is a book. (laughs) It's the only reason these folks ain't dead. Um, Then they hear him roar. There is an answering roar near the shore. And that's what you were talking about earlier, because there's a a juvenile T-Rex sitting with the adult T-Rex's latest kill, claiming it for his own. So the large adult T-Rex stops following Grant and the kids and goes back to get its kill from the juvenile T-Rex, and they're safe. The adult has stopped chasing Grant and the kids and heads toward the shore. Eventually, somehow, all the people fall asleep again. They tired. (laughs) So now they just floating in the raft. Now, if water is pushing you and you don't have, you're not rowing, what does that make you think? (laughs) 
why is the water moving me and I'm not moving me? Yeah, I don't, what is that? I just thought it was just the current was moving along. And why is the current moving? Because of waterfall. waterfall. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we'll leave that there for now. So back at control, Arnold can't use the motion sensors throughout the park to locate either the Rex or Grant and the kids. And he's still baffled as to why. Malcolm has the answer. And for the rest of the book, Malcolm is like, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. He's got a few monologues, but they're pretty good. Um, So Malcolm has the answer. He says the motion sensors cover an inadequate area. And Arnold is insulted, like inadequate. And Malcolm is like, yes, 92% of the park, I remember. But um, they weren't, they were made to monitor where the animals were expected to be. Now with security compromise, the animals are no longer where they were expected to be. And they've reached outside of that 92% radius. And the remaining 8% of the park is made of congruent land. So those animals are free to travel all around the island out of reach of the sensors. And they're like, oh, yeah. So, so Arnold is like, that's terrible. You're right. I hope Grant and the kids, if they still alive, which they probably ain't, don't go to the aviary. He did say that. <laughs> so back in the park, Grant and the kids are headed to the aviary. <laughs> um, they are gradually <laughs> floating toward, no doubt, a waterfall. But before then, they're taken through a large structure Um, That wasn't on the tour. And it has like holes, big, large openings all around it. If that's a birdcage, all the birds would escape, says Lex. Not if they were really large birds, says Grant. So it's the aviary and inside are more than a few cerodactyls. And cerodactyls are larger than pterodactyls. Also, cerodactyls eat fish, but they're fiercely territorial. So when they get there, Grant recognizes the the bird dinosaur and he's like don't worry they won't hurt us they eat fish almost immediately the cerodactyls start tearing them up they start flying down they scratch uh lex all through the head her head bleeding i'm like yes cerodactyls get her wow (laughs) they start knocking them down (laughs) the cerodactyls will stand at the top of the aviary the bird cage um tuck their wings and just like tackle them they ain't trying to eat them (laughs) they just beating them up they just bought that life this is my house why you in my house exactly they protecting they spot yep so when grant and the kids enter the ginormous flying reptiles lunge 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 whatever dive up on them (laughs) leaving lex with a bloody head and grant with a bloody back and at one point they try even to take lex but she's too heavy grant jumps on the bird that's trying to kidnap lex and i'm like grant why this is your excuse to get rid of her but that's good good for you grant he likes children (laughs) he loves children unlike Unlike the movie grandfather (laughs) unlike the grandfather (laughs) yes so Uh, Graham jumps up on the bird and describes the experience as being lost in a tent in a windstorm because it's just wings all around you. You don't even know where you are. They make it out alive, but the birds have stolen Lex's special edition um, strawberry baseball mint. And it is really sad because that's a piece of her father um, that she was holding on to like a security blanket. Um, And she hopes they choke and die, (laughs) she says. Okay. Later on, they find a tunnel behind a waterfall. And you will remember this, not from the first Jurassic Park, but you'll see how the movies are borrowing all from the first book. 
Um, So Grant goes down into the tunnel, but the kids stay behind. Behind this waterfall, there's like an enclave. And so they scoot up behind it, hoping that'll keep them safe. Suddenly, the T-Rex's head bursts through the waterfall. It's a really cool scene. And his tongue wraps around Timmy's head. And Timmy is being dragged um, to the mouth of the great animal. Lex is desperately trying to free her brother, but is no match for the tongue which has a dexterity of an elephant trunk. Mm. Then suddenly the jaws of the dinosaur close in on its own tongue with Timmy still outside of the mouth. (laughs) It snaps down, blood goes everywhere, like bites down on its tongue and releases the boy. What happened? Well, Maldoon had shot. Remember Maldoon is trying to collect these animals and put them back where they belong. So he had shot the T-Rex with a tranquilizer. He was like, that didn't even do nothing. Well, apparently it did, but it needed time. And it just so happens that now, because this is a book, it's kicked in. And so the T-Rex is fast asleep in the waterfall below. Yay! Mm. The children are saved. Okay? Can we for the million children? You like the children. (laughs) So back at control, they're realizing now that when the power returned earlier and we were so excited we shouldn't have been because it was auxiliary power and that auxiliary power is now running out the main power has to be turned on but because the main power wasn't on some of the park's restrictions and enclosures were not electrified and that includes the raptor enclosure it's been without power now unbeknownst to everyone for five hours yep that means the raptors could be anywhere And in a lot of ways, in most ways, they're more terrifying than the T-Rex because they stand eye to eye with you. They about the height of a basketball player, but they have the intelligence of a um, not a basketball player. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a way more scarier animal. So somewhere in the distance when they realize this, there's a scream. Maldoon begins handing out flashlights and directing people on where to go. Arnold, Maldoon, and um, courageous Gennaro, the lawyer, we're all going to go turn on the main power in the park. Mm. Hammond, you need to go to the lodge. But what are you going to do to my animals? This is Hammond's words. Mm -hmm. The animals. Maldoon responds, no. The question is, what are your animals going to do to us? As the three men... Again, Maldoon, Arnold, and Gennaro make their way to manually turn on the main power. They realize that they're being hunted. Arnold runs ahead while Maldoon and Gennaro guard the rear. Gennaro loads Maldoon's gun and one of the velociraptors chases Arnold, um, but it explodes because Maldoon shoots it. There were three raptors. However, the other two that were not shot begin stop, stop chasing Arnold and turn and start running toward Maldoon and Gennaro. Maldoon escapes by crawling butt first into a pipe where he phones Woo. Also, we didn't mention this, but Maldoon has been drinking since everything went wrong. So he's been drinking <laughs> all day. <laughs> he is a day drinker, but also a night. He's, he's, he's drunk. <laughs> he said a day and a night drinker. He's functionally no uh, drunk right now. So he calls Wu and he's like, oh, it's getting complicated. And I'm very popular at the moment. His pipe is surrounded by uh, velociraptors. And um, so while that's happening, Arnold runs into the enclosure that's holding the power switch. 
So they distracted the Velociraptors, Gennaro and Maldun, and Arnold was able to run into uh, the building to turn on the power. It's very dim inside, but he locates a railing and then he hears it. He runs down the ladder. It's a steep tunnel, about 20 feet. And when he reaches the bottom, he hears a boom. The Velociraptor that's been following him has jumped down the 20 feet. Good grief. And then he screams. (sighs) He did. So Wu leaves control to rescue Maldun. Wu is like, I'm supposed to stay here to help them turn on the power. But if they don't make it there, there won't be any power to turn on. I need to go rescue them. And he does. So um, he leaves to rescue Maldun. Meanwhile, Gennaro is following behind Arnold. And when he gets to the bottom of the tunnel, Gennaro encounters a small injured Velociraptor, but he's strong. Remember, Gennaro is like courageous and like tough in this book. So he pushes the little injured Velociraptor away and Maldun and Gennaro make it to the lodge thanks to Wu. But they're being followed. So Grant and the kids, (laughs) meanwhile, find their way to the visitor center. They're excited and relieved. They're like, we made it to civilization. I ain't even going to describe the waterfall because that was trying my nerves. They made it, (laughs) y'all. So... And they, they're <laughs> like, this is it. You know what? The trouble Finally. is over. Yes. Right away, Lex is like, I want ice cream. But when they open the door, all three fall silent. It looks like a disaster. There's a large robotic T-Rex lying on the floor, split in half with its wire intestines exposed. There are two dead guards on the floor. And Grant takes one of the um, dead guards radio and says inside, hello, anyone there? Everyone is shocked and relieved to hear Grant's voice on the radio. They can't believe he made it. And with the kids, they need him to go turn on the main power. He leaves the kids, takes the radio and heads to the maintenance building to turn on the power to save everyone. And the kids go to find food because they're very small minded. Meanwhile, they're not adults. They're children and they're hungry. They've been through a lot. (laughs) Okay. So meanwhile, Malcolm is dying and needs a doctor, but the Velociraptors have made it to the roof of the lodge and are breaking wire and iron to get inside and eat everyone through the skylight. How will the people make it to another shelter alive? How will Grant make it to the maintenance building without being eaten by the raptors? Ellie has the answer. She goes, I'll save everyone by serving as bait. And everyone's like, no, don't go. (laughs) Yeah, go by. (laughs) So (laughs) Maldon is drunk. So he's like, I'll go with you. (laughs) Cause he don't know what he doing at this point. He kind of do. He kind of don't. He's a drunk. So there are six rafters. Let's count them. You guys, let's remember this count. Mm -hmm. There are six rafters that we know of. Ellie, Heads outside, opens a gate. So she's unprotected now. She's hoping the Velociraptors heard the gate, which they have, and she walks through it as bait, just stepping a little bit away and a little bit away from the safety of the gate. Soon, three Velociraptors are on her butt. She runs back and Maldun pulls her in and closes the gate just in time. She's safe. Maldun and Ellie began taunting the Velociraptors, distracting them from the maintenance building so that Grant can turn on the power. Remember, there's just three, though, that they're taunting. We got six total. 
Meanwhile, remember that part of the movie where the kids are in the kitchen and two raptors are trying to eat them? Yeah. Well, that happens with some key differences. So first of all, it's pitch black inside. They can't see anything. Um, I think uh, Timmy has on his night goggles. Right. So he can uh, kind of see. And there's only one raptor. The kids manage to lock him in the freezer. He's not like turning the handles and stuff like in the movie. Like, hey, y'all go eat you. No, he's stuck in the freezer. It's locked. <laughs> So we're down one, three, Ellie is distracting one. The kids have locked in the freezer. There's two more. We don't know where they are. Oh, yes, we do. They're on the roof Mm -hmm. trying to get through to Malcolm to eat them. Yes. Okay. so Grant turns on the power with Wu's help over the radio. Yay. Wu starts thinking to himself, though, you know, these animals are very intelligent and the raptors are extremely intelligent. Ellie is outside distracting them, but this has been going on way too long. They know they can't get her. Why are they still allowing this? And then if you look outside of Ellie and the raptors, um, they're kind of like playing with her. <laughs> They'll like run up to the fence and run away. <laughs> they like having a good time. And Maldoon is inside watching this and he's like, they're acting like birds putting on a show. Okay. <laughs> but then Wu is like, no. We're missing something. He notices the raptors aren't even trying to catch Ellie anymore. And they know they can't. So they're playing with her. But why? So Wu opens the door and screams, Ellie, get inside. Get inside. And though Wu would never admit it, the discovery that the dinosaurs were breeding represented a tremendous validation of his work. A breeding animal was demonstrably effective in a fundamental way. It implied that Wu had put all the pieces together correctly. He had recreated an animal millions of years old with such precision that the creature could even reproduce itself. But still, looking at the raptors outside, he was troubled by the persistence of their behavior. Raptors were intelligent, and intelligent animals got bored quickly. Intelligent animals also formed plans, and Harding came out into the hallway from Malcolm's room. Where's Ellie? Still outside. Better get her in. The raptors have left the skylight. When? Wu said, moving to the door. Just a moment ago, Harding said. Wu threw open the front door. Ellie! Inside! Now! She looked over at him, puzzled. There's no problem. Everything's under control. Now! She shook her head. I know what I'm doing, she said. Now, Ellie! Maldoon didn't like Wu standing there with the door open. He was about to say so when he saw a shadow descend from above and he realized at once what had happened. Wu was yanked bodily out the door and Maldoon heard Ellie screaming. Maldoon got to the door and looked out and saw that Wu was lying on his back, his body already torn open by the big claw, and the raptor was jerking its head, tugging at Wu's intestines, even though Wu was still alive, still feebly reaching up with his hands to push the big head away. He was being eaten while he was still alive. And then Ellie stopped screaming and started to run along the inside of the fence, and Maldoon slammed the door shut, dizzy with horror. It had happened so fast. Harding said he jumped down from the roof. Maldoon nodded. He went to the window and looked out and he saw that the three raptors outside the fence were now running away, but they weren't following Ellie. They were going back toward the visitor's center. (sighs) 
okay, y'all. So Wu was the only person that could work the computer system because Arnold is dead and Hammond knows nothing about his own park. It's a problem. How will they get the system up and running now that the power is on and Wu dead? Meanwhile, Ellie is still running. She climbs to the roof and the raptors follow her. She jumps off into a pool below the building and just barely makes it. My problem is that before she jumps, she knocks on the door of the roof, but then runs away immediately. (laughs) So when Harding opens that door to the roof, a raptor slashes his chest open. It takes all he has to close that door and fall to the ground. Ellie, why'd you even knock on the door? She was, <laughs> trying, she was trying to get in. So she done killed one man, woo, and almost two. But Harding is alive, thank goodness. So the kids who have just escaped the raptor in the kitchen find themselves in front of the main computer system trying to turn it on in Wu's absence. Wu isn't alive to walk them through it, so they're just pushing random buttons. The raptors that slashed Harding, the vet, um, and almost ate Ellie and did eat Wu, and now they're after the children, those same raptors. Uh, One raptor jumped over 10 feet onto the second floor where the kids are pressing buttons, trying to turn on the security system. The kids start to run. They find themselves in a corridor, but all the doors on both sides of it are locked. Meaning they did it. Yay. They turned on the security system, but now they're locked out of all these doors. So Tim takes a badge off of a dead security guard, pushes Lex and himself through one of the doors. Quick thinking, Tim. Grant also finds a badge on a dead guard. Thank goodness for these dead guards because they got all the badges. And so Grant (laughs) takes it and finds the kids. Now, Gennaro, Grant, and the kids are running from the raptors. Grant gets separated from the other three, but manages to poison the dinosaurs with a needle full uh, or an egg full of poison. It's a scene I did not hold my attention. The last I read scene? it like three really? times. Yeah. Can you, can you describe it? I mean, he like injects these plastic eggs with poison. He's yeah. Like stabbing them with poison. Yeah. So he's injecting like these um, plastic eggs with the lysine. Right. And he's kind of rolling them under and he's trying to get the uh, raptors to kind of pay attention to him. But they're not really paying attention to him. So he has to do something else to draw their attention to the the eggs. And so when he's like, if my research is correct, they're scavengers and they prefer to eat the eggs of other animals. So if I fill these eggs with poison and roll it to them like bowling balls, they won't eat me for some reason. And they'll just eat these eggs. Right. (laughs) because <laughs> it's a book he does get them to eat the eggs at least two of them um i think there are three of them in this room at this point and he two of them eat the eggs and then the last one is not coming for the egg he's still coming for him but he ends up getting the last one to turn around and he stabs him with the needle and gives him the injection of the lysine. Is it lysine? lysine? I don't know. Okay, great. So he's poisoned them to death. This <laughs> is a little Dios ex machina, but that's fine. Um, and then at the last minute, everyone is able to contact that boat and tell them, hey, you have a lot of raptors on board. I don't know if you noticed. Um, good thing they didn't eat you guys, but you can't, you can't arrive to shore. You have to turn around and come back to the island. And they do. So they've saved the mainland from getting velociraptors. What does Hammond say? Hammond is like, it was all supposed to be so easy. Hammond said, 
Um, oh no, the planet. <laughs> oh, thank goodness we've saved the planet. We saved the planet. And Malcolm is so close to death, but he got it. He just can't take no stew. He don't suffer fools. So Malcolm finds the um, power to sit up and go, what did you just say? You idiot. And Ham is like the planet. We saved the planet because the dinosaurs would have got out and ruined the planet. And Malcolm goes into a very inspiring monologue where he's like, the planet will be fine. You, narcissistic fool, will not destroy the planet. What power you must think you have? Mm -hmm. No, that was never the aim. That was never the the fear. It was humanity. (laughs) Humanity might not be here, but the planet will always be here. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's really great. So out of 24 people on the island, eight are dead, six more are missing. Um, and for some reason, Grant is like, hey, everybody, we so close to safety, but let's go find the raptor nest. <laughs> Just a little more fun before we go. And this one I said, Ham, uh, Grant must have went to Harvard. So <laughs> uh, Grant is like, I want to count all the raptor nests to make sure I know, since they're breeding, how many raptors were on the island. Can you explain the logic of this, Alexis? So he said, we can't just let somebody else come in and destroy. We need to know what's here. So can we know what happened. We can tell this story properly. And I don't think it's just for a story, but it's to know. You uh, to document correct uh, yes. velociraptor behavior, how they breed. We want to see the nest. Okay. Yeah. For the sake of research. Well, not just research, but, well, yeah, for research. <laughs> Essentially because of this island. I mean, you can't just explode. You know, you can you could put this bomb on the island, but some have the capability to get away. You need to know what's there. So now that you make a good point, now that the power is back on, they've called for help. They're pretty sure that help is going to bomb the entire island, um, saving whoever they can quickly save. Um, So he's like, yeah, before it's all destroyed, we should at least document it. And then he starts like being really mean to Gennaro. He's like, you caused this. And Gennaro's like, what? I'm just a lawyer. And he's like, you convinced investors to do this and now it exists. So you're coming with us. And you're not just going to shirk off your responsibility. All of this is your fault. Did you feel like that was justified? Uh, yeah. He's just a lawyer. <laughs> He's not just a lawyer. He was in on it. It was his organization that was backing it. He had the ability to shut it down. So, yeah, they're financing this. So somebody got to take responsibility. And it's you. You're the one present. You need you can't just throw your money at stuff and not, and walk away. And that's essentially what he was doing. So that's the job. (laughs) That's the job of lawyers to convince investors to invest in this thing. Right. You you basically the lawyer. You know that. Do you have to know everything about the thing? So no, that's not your job. The doctor said you can't live like that. You all these people's lives have been lost. You now need to see what you put your money into. I didn't put my money into it. I convinced other people to do it. I'm on Gennaro's side on this. I was just going to work. You better get out of here. High on your horse. But but anyway, they dragged Gennaro to a, a velociraptor colony and barely missed death while they're documenting the colony. And all the um, dinosaurs, just as Grant predicted, act like birds, birds ready to migrate. And so eventually, now everyone has followed Grant except um, Harding, who's basically a doctor. <laughs> Because he's the vet and Malcolm, who's really sick. 
And of course, Hammond, because he's selfish and he ain't going to do nothing. So while they're trying to find this back at the lodge, um, Malcolm is indeed dying. A helicopter was called, but who knows when it'll arrive. To Hammond, Malcolm's death would be the final rebuke. It would be worse than if someone he actually like died and he can't take it. He like, I need to go for a walk. I'm going to go get some air. So he decides to go for a walk. Hammond does get some fresh air. And while walking, he contemplates what is happening around him. Jurassic Park isn't failing. It's not falling to the ground. It's not imploding. There were minor errors, minor hiccups, he reasons. And on second thought, Wu was the problem. Yeah, it was Wu. He was not the man for the job. In fact, Wu was the reason for the downfall because he was so focused on improving the dinosaurs. He was distracted and it was his fault. Also, Arnold, he wasn't a man for the job. Uh, Neither man had vision or imagination. And those are things you need for Jurassic Park. Also, Ed Regis, he wasn't a man for the job. Also, Harden, for real, this is like going through Hammond's mind. He like, ain't nobody the man for the job but me. Even Maldon's a drunk. Also, he blamed the children. <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> Heaven is the worst. And I've always thought so in the movie. So I'm glad that the book finally cements the fact that Hammond is the villain of the story. So the next time he decides they'll be ready. The next time I won't make the mistake of hiring all these wrong men. So suddenly, as he's having these thoughts, he hears it. Wait a minute. The roar. Wait. He blamed the children and the island. The island. He blamed the island. So Alexis is jumping ahead. But yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Hammond blames everyone but himself. So suddenly he hears it. And that's the roar of the T-Rex. What was the T-Rex doing outside of his paddock? The power's on now. What, what, what is going on? He sees a guard run for his life and seeing him. Uh, run for his life Hammond begins to panic and so he falls down a hill and breaks his ankle moments later he hears over the park's loudspeaker his grandchildren arguing I want to press it Lex says and then he hears the Tyrannosaurus Rex roaring again but this time with a distinct musical background it's the kids (laughs) they done found a button that you can press to make a t-rex sound through the whole park and that's what hammond was running from and this is when (laughs) as alexis has described hammond blames the children for everything he says there is no t-rex there is no danger the danger is them kids they pressing buttons causing noise over the park speakers um you know that's the trouble with having kids around and those kids have been nothing but trouble from the beginning no one wanted them around this is what he says they grandpappy that invited them to the island to get eaten and then he sits down listens to the jungle and begins to cry for help Soon he hears a chittering sound. It's the compies. Remember, those are the small animals from the beginning that even started us on our journey in part one. Uh, go back and listen to the episode. Um, so it's the compies. They look like chickens, but he also knew that they were poisonous. 
he throws a rock at them and they're not scared. They seem sort of amused by him. They know he can't hurt them. They're like, he's throwing rocks. <laughs> we go eat him. Um, and then Hammond is like, I'm not afraid of you either. <laughs> he remembers what a caretaker told him, that the narcotics of the animals, when they bite you, makes the victim feel calm after a bite, sleepy, peaceful. And Hammond's like, I ain't going to sleep today. And I ain't never been about peace. So it ain't going to be me. This is like a paralyzing um, lull. Yeah. It like locks you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hammond picked up a rock, aimed carefully, and threw it, striking one compi flat in the chest. The little animal streaked in alarm as it was knocked backward and rolled over its tail. The other animals immediately backed away. Better. Hammond turned away and started to climb the hill once more, holding branches in both hands. He hopped on his left leg, feeling the ache in his thigh. He had not gone more than 10 feet when one of the compies jumped onto his back. He flung his arms wildly, knocking the animal away, but lost his balance and slid back down the hillside. As he came to a stop, a second compie sprang forward and took a tiny nip from his hand. He looked with horror, seeing the blood flow over his fingers. He turned and began to scramble up the hillside again. Another compie jumped onto his shoulder, and he felt a brief pang as it bit the back of his neck. He turned to face the animals, breathing hard, and they stood all around him, hopping up and down and cocking their heads, watching him. From the bite on his neck, he felt warmth flow through his shoulders and down his spine. Lying on his back on the hillside, he began to feel strangely relaxed, detached from himself. But he realized that nothing was wrong. No error had been made. Malcolm was quite incorrect in his analysis. Hammond lay very still, as still as a child in its crib, and he felt wonderfully peaceful. When the next compie came up and bit his ankle, he made only a half-hearted effort to kick it away. The little animals edged closer. Soon, they were chattering all around him, like excited birds. He raised his head as another compie jumped onto his chest. The animal surprisingly light and delicate. Hammond felt only a slight pain, very slight, as the compie bent to chew his neck. Hammond dead. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so who was following, who was looking for the raptor nest for no reason? Grant, Ellie, Gennaro. Um, I feel like one more, maybe Maldoom. Maldoom it don't matter. Maldoom. Mm-hmm. So a helicopter comes overhead, scoops them all up and Harning. Unfortunately, Malcolm succumbed to his injuries and we already know what happened to Hammond. As they look over at Hammond, there's like a compi uh, standing on his mouth, eating his eyeballs or something. It's wild. (laughs) The end. Epilogue. So they're at this resort in Costa Rica waiting to go home. The kids are playing in the pool Um, Grant is recounting what's happened over the last few days. The authorities have been questioning him. They feel lied to by Hammond. And they're like, you must know something. What happened? Oh, 
the island's been bombed. All the dinosaurs, we assume at this point, are dead on the island. And so they're like, how did it ever get this far? The U.S. government is now involved. Um, and Grant's like, I'll tell you what happened because I don't feel connected to it like that. So I'm just tell you. Um, but he's like, there's something you're waiting for. What is it? Well, they're waiting for an official from the U.S. government, it seems, who eventually comes and also questions Grant. And he's like, so do you think all the animals are dead? And Grant's like, no, <laughs> I think some of them live in <laughs> I mean, life, you know, it finds a way. I heard that said once. Yeah. Um, and he's like, yeah, uh, us too, because some things have been happening in the rural areas of this island. And Grant's like, oh, the babies, they've been eating more babies. And he's like, no, no, they've stopped doing that. Thank goodness. But they've been eating all the chickens and corns and food high in lysine and then um, hiding in the forest. And the way the forest is set up here, we ain't never going to find them unless they want to be found. Mm. And then the official looks over at the kids and goes, they'll probably get to go home. There's no point in keeping them. And Grant's like, hmm, just them. We not going home. And the official says, none of us are going home. Whoa. The end. You want to take a break? Yes, please. That was a lot. Okay, here we go. What did you think of Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton? Did you enjoy the book? I can't even speak. Did you enjoy the book and would you recommend it? Okay, so um, the articles from last week that said that the movie was better than the book, I got to disagree with them. They lie. Yeah, the book <laughs> is so um, engaging. You You just get wrapped up in the way they tell this story. And it's like, you're drawn in and you're on the edge of your seat many times as I'm reading and they're getting to the point and they're like, and he eats him and he's holding his guts in his hand. And Oh, he peed on himself because he is dying. Just, or that never happened. Y'all she really dark. (laughs) (laughs) No one peed themselves because they was dying. I you got a problem. I think that did happen. You just speak to somebody. <laughs> it didn't. So I enjoy all the details that it gave um, that came with the park troubles. It's kind of the stuff that wasn't detailed in the movie. I loved um, reading that. I remember mentioning that the book was heavily technical in the beginning, but that's okay because spread out. And then um, I appreciated hearing Malcolm's explanations about the chaos theory. And because well, they no, finished that thought you were saying it was very technical in the beginning, but that's OK, because spread out. Yeah, because spread out over the book, you just all came together. I'm sorry. It's digestible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It all kind of comes together. and You're like, oh, I get that. Oh, OK, I mm-hmm. see where this fits in. And it all just makes sense. But then hearing the explanation about Ian Malcolm's chaos theory uh, in the movie, they just give small little snippets of it. But to have him say to he asked, um, 
he asks, what's her name? The adult woman? Ellie? Ellie. He asks Ellie about what they do with their sites, their dig sites. Brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. He was like, scientists don't want things to be as they should be. They want to leave their mark. They want to show I've been here. And the way you do that is by messing things up and destroying things. And he's like, I don't agree with you. He goes, oh, really? So what happens to a site after you're done digging? Do you ever replant uh, wildlife or uh, flora? Do you make sure the land looks like it was untouched? And she's like, no. Why? Because there's no money for that. There's no money for that. So, yeah. I mean, he is really reading them. He was reading them so much at one point. I was like, dang, he is really getting preachy out here. Stop it already. But he was really telling them, this is stupid. You didn't listen. I gave you I gave you details, yes. And the Malcolm effect did happen. Okay? Mm-hmm. That happened. And you just you're just failing. And so I love the book. I loved it very much and I would definitely read it again and recommend it to people. Uh I just would be interested in what the next book says with Dr. Wu and Hammond did. You know, because I'm thinking about the movie. I just want to know what the next book says, um, how the next book kind of carries that on. So I really enjoyed it. What about you, Kari? Would you recommend it? So the next book, The Lost World, is going to divert great, or the movies have had to divert greatly from the book, I I guess. Before I give my verdict, I want to ask you, should we read this before the season's over? Oh, boy. Well, why not? I'd be Too for much it. dinosaur? No, okay, I don't I'll think do it's too. too much dinosaur. Like, I didn't think it was gory, so. Ooh. <laughs> disembowelment that's the word of the day class if you never if you don't know what disembowelment re- mean read this book it's when you standing up going to the grocery store and you look down and tuck your shirt in and you holding your guts <laughs> it's dark it's dark <laughs> so, i mean that just happened in the book so that said i don't like violence um however these is animals and they're justified um and it's it's there are some parts I thought, ooh, that's going to stick with me for a, a second. But it didn't because these are dinosaurs and it can't happen. It can't so. happen. <laughs> Even if they do bring back the woolly mammoth. <laughs> okay. We don't know, but Foolishness. okay. Also, I'm convinced this happened. They brought back dinosaurs. This explain. This is explained too well to the T. I feel like I could bring back a dinosaur now. And I love that. It made me feel educated in a way that I know is not true because this is faux science. So it's not real, but I feel like it is. Made me feel really smart. Thank you, Michael. Also, um, the themes about the way you live one day mirrors the way you live your entire life. So part of the... Um, chaos theory he was talking about take the tip of a mountain and if you look at the way that tip is shaped it mirrors the way the entire mountain is structured you can apply that to the way people live their lives if you take one day of someone's life there are patterns that follow them through their entire life and for me I love that because it reminded me if you live a lazy day you're gonna live a lazy life don't do it me so I'm Raising my hand. That's me. Girl, we all do. So, so this is just a good reminder to get on the ball. Thank you, uh, Malcolm. Uh, so sorry you passed. Uh, expectation versus reality. Oh, you want these good. dinosaurs to be what you expect. You want the woolly mammoth Ooh, to be that. what you think they like. But what are they really like? And will you respect what whatever that presents itself as being, whatever they present themselves as being? 
Um, and then no one is more optimistic than a narcissist. These are things we discussed last week, and I love how they close those circles um, in this book. So, yeah, I'd recommend it. It's really good. And every white teenage boy or every white man I know read this book as a teenager. And where was I? I don't know. Now, I did try to read Congo at like maybe 13. And I thought this is way over my head. Would you read um, it again now? Try again? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Especially uh, with the more technical parts. If I got bored. So the t- the um, beginning of the book where they're explaining the process kept my attention. Mm-hmm. But by the fifth time, granting the kids was trying to save their life, I was over that. <laughs> I was like, either live or die, but do something. <laughs> I don't want to see y'all running for y'all life no more. I'm, I'm over it. And when they got to the eggs, I was really done. No. When he started poisoning the eggs and throwing at them like water balloons, I was like, this is silly. No. And so those parts I had to listen to. And that's perfectly fine. They was trying um, to live. <laughs> too much let's just lay down it's over um you but they made it died. so it's great okay i'm sure <laughs> yeah for the sake of my time i gotta go to work <laughs> so um so yes to answer your question i enjoyed this book and would highly recommend it wow there we go we did it what are we reading next week kari Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. By Ray Bradbury. That's right. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by me, Alexis Honoria, and Kari Herrera. Support the What it do. Support the cause by leaving a five star review for our show on Apple Podcasts along with a comment about why you absolutely love us because we love you too we do we do if you've enjoyed what you just heard tell a friend about Lit Society visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter and until next time readers read read something something. just something thank you